Luke 10, 38, now it came to pass. As they, uh, as they went, Jesus and his 12 disciples, so there's 13 of them, that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. Sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. As you would agree, there are a lot of things that need to be done at Christmas time. Shopping. Shopping, you, you, you never stop shopping because when you've gone shopping in town, then you come home and you shop online. I mean, it's just a constant flow. There's all of the cooking and traveling. Stressed out about family get-togethers. Doesn't that stress everybody out? I mean, oh, no, Uncle so-and-so is coming. It's going to be a nightmare. That's all the stuff that goes on at Christmas. Worrying about everything just right. The tree's got to be right. The, the, the turkey's got to be right. What have we let Christmas become? Well, it's kind of like that in Martha's house. 13 men had just showed up. I mean, if, if, if 13 of us showed up at your house, You'd kind of freak out too, okay? So it's a natural reaction that Martha had. But Jesus corrects her when she says, I need help. And Jesus says, no, you don't. Isn't that kind of strange? Uh, she cor he corrects her and says something for us in the 21st century, and that is that in the busy times, look there in verse uh, 42, first four words or five words, but one thing is needful. In the stressed out times, one thing is needful. In the hard and the impossible times, one, only one thing is needful. When you're going through dark and fearful times, one and only one thing is needful. I used to think that Jesus was actually saying, Martha, you've got 15 different meals preparing for everything. Only one. We just need something to munch on. But as I read about this and this, I don't know, I, I looked at our subject we're going to see in just a moment. I thought, you know what? I think I understand now that uh, Jesus, in the midst of all that Martha's effort, he said only one thing was needed to be done. And that was what, if you look in verse 42, what Mary was doing. That it was needful part was to worship Jesus. Um, we need to endeavor to worship Jesus at Christmas more than any time else. I used to think that people knew what it meant to worship Jesus. But I've come to discover a few people know how to worship. They can talk about him. They can go to church. They can even find places in the Bible. That's great. But their personal life, their, their, their own personal walk with God is not one of worship. So I need to go to Matthew chapter 1 here. And we're going to look at some men who can teach us how to worship Jesus. A lot of things are happening when Jesus is born. When you're turning there, he was born in a tiny village called Bethlehem, just as it was prophesied in Micah 5. He was born just at the right time of history. Now, I had to go to Matthew. I want you to hold this place. Go to Galatians, because I kind of want to give you a few scriptures here to ponder and think about. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. And I want you to understand 
that the nation of Israel was not a free nation at that time. They were under Roman rule. Roman military and governors occupied their land. It was no picnic. The Jewish people had very limited freedoms, and this was a time of great sorrow for them. They had come through what had been the Maccabean uh, uh, fight for freedom. They had, they had tried so hard from the Greeks, and now they're under the Romans. Things just working, weren't working out. But on top of that, Jewish people were under the requirements of the Old Testament laws. Now, we're Gentiles. We have no idea what it would be like to try to live as a Jew. But they had that also bearing on, even though they were under Roman rule, even though they weren't free to worship and to live as they, they found in the Bible, they still had to keep the law. And Galatians chapter 4, and God says this was the perfect time for Jesus to be born. Look in verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, the fullness means when the clock had come to full cycle and it was time. When the alarm went off, okay, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. So kings were known as being the son of somebody else of royalty. But Jesus was known son of a woman. He was the son of God. It was a virgin birth. Matthew, go back to Matthew chapter 1, pick up in verse 18. This was a miracle birth. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when his mother, Mary, was a spouse. They weren't even married yet to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found the child of the Holy Ghost. And Joseph, her husband, we're still in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, which is what when somebody steps out on your relationship and is not committed to you and, and, and gets pregnant by some other person, you you... You bring him before the judge and you say, I don't want to marry this person, this person. But he does not wish to do that. So he's minded to put her away privily. He's going to send her away, verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. This is a miracle. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. I wish he would put a circle around that verse, but we'll come back to it in a moment. Verse 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. It was a virgin birth that happened there on Christmas. And Jesus was called Jesus, for a reason, look back there in verse 21, you bring forth a son, you're going to call his name Jesus. Why? Because he came to save. He's come to save his people from our sins, not to create a national holiday. I am glad for Christmas to be recognized as a Christmas as a national holiday. It'd be awful to live in a country where Christmas was not honored at all, where there were no lights in the city. I like going into court, not at Christmas, but I like going into court before it gets really heavy. And all of the lights, it's really beautiful. I like going down uh, the roads and you see houses lit up. It's beautiful, isn't it? I kind of like the fact that Christmas at least is honored. But Jesus didn't come to make a national holiday, did he? He came to save people from their sins. When we come to chapter 2, Jesus moves into a house. Now, he's first born in a barn in a, uh, just outside of an inn. And in verse chapter 2, look in verse uh one, and then we'll jump down to verse 11. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, 
the days of Herod, the king, behold, there came wise men from the east. Now go down to verse 11, just the first part. And when they were coming to the house, now they went to the inn and they were not accepted. So they ended up in a, in a, in a barn. But it's a few days later, probably a few months, if not a year later, and they've moved into a house at this point. Uh, and that's when in chapter two, we just read that some men come into Jerusalem. These men are kind of unique. These are Persian men. Um, they are, uh, they're not from Rome, but from the east. They're from Persia. And these are wise men. And that was a term that describes a class of men that studied everything. We would call them university professors or scientists. These were smart men. They were not opinionated, but thoughtful, careful students of history and sciences and reading and thinking and questioning. Now, you get the NIV. It says the Magi came. And they weren't Magi. They were wise men. They're not magicians. They were astronomers. By the way, not astrologers. There's a difference. But they studied the motions of planets and stars, noticing when new ones would appear. And if you're going to do that, you have to be patient. Every night they would go out and they would try to see if there are new stars or if a planet had moved. And so they were constantly trying to track things and understand what was going on. These men were wealthy men. They were powerful men back in their country. And when they came into town, it wasn't like just one or two. It was probably a group that came in and there was an entourage. They had traveled nearly a month, over 600 miles they had traveled. And now they came into Jerusalem. It would have caused, and it did, a great stir. But they were searching men. As you look there in verse uh, 2, it says, saying, and this is what they were saying as they met people, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, these were rude men because <laughs> they didn't go ask the king. They bypassed him. They just asked the normal people. Word got to the king. They ended up to him. But, you know, they weren't worried about making sure everybody's happy. They were looking for somebody. And when you're looking for somebody, you don't worry about everybody else's feelings. I want us to notice in verse 11, go to verse 11, because we're going to spend some time here. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. And what did they do? They worshiped him. They got in close. Now, I kind of didn't chance, get a chance to put the manger back up there, but these grown men fell down in front of a baby. They became very quiet in his presence. It overwhelmed them to be in his presence. They took time to worship Jesus. They didn't, marry, didn't worship Mary, didn't say anything to Joseph. He didn't worship the angels or stars, but a baby. Now, if you look there in verse 2, I want you to notice. Let's read verse, verse, verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 11. I want you to notice something. Now, when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. There's a colon there. Not a full stop, but a colon, which means pause. A colon means there's some time that takes place. We don't know how long. Things are still going on. They are going to still be worshiping. And that, right after that, they bring out their gifts. But they take time to worship him. Now, were there loads of people in that house? I don't think so. It doesn't mention anybody else. But this, this small group of men blessed, just 
by worshiping Jesus. So these two thoughts came to me. I want to answer two questions this morning. First of all, what does it mean to worship Jesus? And why is it good for us to do it 2,021 years later? You do realize our calendar is based upon his birthday, amen? This is the year of our Lord, 2021. So let me talk to you for just a few minutes here. What does it mean to worship Jesus? Go back to verse 1. And there are ingredients here to worship that we need to put in our daily routine. Verse 1, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where? What were these men doing? They were seeking. They were searching for someone they only read about. That's me. I have not met Jesus yet, but I read about him. And I can't wait to meet him. But what got me interested in Christianity was somebody opened the Bible to me, explaining my condition and his answer. And as Maureen Smith and later other people gave me the gospel and told me what the Bible said about him, I all of a sudden started reading the Bible for myself. I started to read, and I wanted to know who this Jesus was. I never get over that. I'm still wanting to know him. You know what Paul's greatest desire in Philippians 3.10 is? He says this. He says, I'm saved 20-some-odd years, but my greatest desire is that I may know him. What a strange thing to say. You think Paul, probably a very smart guy, very educated, very religious, he would have known enough about Jesus to say, oh, now I want to know about heaven, or I want to know about second coming. No, he says, I just want to know him more. People seek a lot of things. But these men were, were wise men, and they wanted to know who the scriptures talked about. I meet people on online, people ask questions and stuff, and they talk about what the Bible talks about. I'd rather talk about who. Because it's not the what that saves, it's the who that changes a life. Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But they are they which testify of me. So the first thing that worship means is to seek and to find who you're reading about in scripture. Worship is not passive. It begins when you seek to know Jesus personally yourself. What were they looking for? Well, they were looking for a Messiah. We don't have time to go through the prophecies we could spend all morning looking at them, but Balaam says there's coming him who would be a star. And what's, what's crazy is these guys were in the east. If I could put a map, these guys were over in Persia, and a star was going to rise over Israel, which is in the west. Stuff doesn't rise from the west, folks. Things rise from the east, don't they? The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. The stars rise in the east. And yet there would be a star that would rise in the east. And boy, it got their attention. You see how come they says, we got to go see what this star is. And over Israel, over Jacob, rose a star. And Balaam saw that. And they, these men read that. And they read in Isaiah about the Son of God being the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. They were looking also for the savior of the entire world. You know, I don't want a helper. I don't want uh, a financial advisor. I don't need a physical counselor, a mental counselor. Maybe I do. I don't know. I, don't, I, I need a savior. 
Why spend your life reading this book if it doesn't fix my soul, if it doesn't fix my sin? They went looking for a savior. That's what we need. We don't need dose after dose after booster after booster of a failed vaccine. I'm so tired of politics and of wokeness and of psychology and Santa. Our problems are heart problems. Our problems are sin problems. Our problems are spiritual problems. And we need to find him who came to seek and to save that which was lost. So they went off from Babylon to find him. And according to verse 3, there in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, they wanted to get as close as possible. Look in verse 3. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ, the Messiah, should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Now we know his intention was to kill him. But verse 9 says, when they heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they... Saul, over in the east, now went before them again till he came and stood over the young, where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, I want you to understand, they came all the way from Babylon, 600 miles, up to a month of travel time. You don't travel very fast when you travel camels, and these are not lightning speed. So they end up in Jerusalem. They don't know exactly where to go. They don't have the book of Malachi. They have the books that were left by Daniel and Ezra and other Jews back before during the captivity. So they don't have the full picture. And as they come and they're asking everybody, nobody's heard of the king that was born. So thankfully, Herod says, where's this king supposed to be born? And a scribe says, oh, I know, Micah chapter 5. And he quotes it. And all of a sudden, they know exactly where they're supposed to go. But up until that point, they might I, I imagine they might have gotten discouraged. They might have said, no one knows about this king. And they might have said, well, we did our best. Let's head home. I know too many people like that who kind of go halfway and they kind of go looking for God and they read a few chapters in the Bible and they get, oh, I don't understand it. And they close the book. They go trying to search for him. They pray and nothing happens. I'm glad these men didn't quit. They were rewarded for it. They kept searching. They kept asking, where is he? If you ever find yourself, uh, you know, in a church and you don't know what's going on, ask him, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Ah, oh, we don't worry about him. We're worrying about you and we worry about your happiness. No, no, no. Your focus ought to be, let's talk about Jesus. They wanted to get as close as possible. When they found out he's in Bethlehem, guess where they wanted to go? To a little bit. Now, these were very powerful men. They should have been in Jerusalem, should have stayed in the best hotel, but they didn't. They went to this little village called Bethlehem, and they were content to go. By the way, these men were few in number. The whole city of Jerusalem is watching them, looking at them, and they don't mind being the only ones that are looking to worship Jesus. Do you ever feel a little out of place at work? Maybe in your home even? You're the only one? I find that Christians are very timid today. 
I mean, why aren't Christians fighting to be up on the front row? Why, why aren't we, why, aren't, why isn't our prayer meetings full? Why do these wise men go so far and nobody else is doing anything? Why do pastors and only a few people carry the load of the other 80 or 90% of the church? Why on, especially a Sunday morning when we get to, a chance to sing, why are we raising the roof with our joy? Why are we ashamed of the gospel that saved us? These worshipers of Jesus didn't mind being the few who actually stood out and worshiped and got excited about worshiping. They didn't mind giving all that they had to Jesus. They didn't mind traveling farther than anyone else. And just as long as they got to meet Jesus, I kind of want to keep that attitude and that spirit myself. These men then did the unbelievable. In verse 11, it says they fell down and worshiped him. Read verse 11 again. When they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. And literally, they fell down and worshiped him. This is the most important part of worship. And it's the hardest part. You know why it's hard? Because we think we're humble already. We think when we're as we are, we never have to humble ourselves. We never have to go lower than other people. And yet, isn't that what God did when he became a man? And if he came low, shouldn't we, shouldn't we go lower because he is the king? Worship means to seek and find, as we saw, who you read about in the scriptures. I'm looking forward to the rapture. I'm looking forward to meeting him one day. I seek for him to come back. One of the, the last prayer in the Bible is even so come, Lord Jesus. I'm seeking him. But also means to get as close as you can as possible. If you ever get a chance, if you ever have a moment where you're praying and you sense him coming into your presence and he making you aware that he's there, you should go low. You should humble yourself. Psalm 95, 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. I think that would be a great verse for that moment. Think about Jesus. He's not in a manger at this point. Maybe his mother's holding him. Maybe his dad's holding him. I don't know. But when those men came into that room, do you know what the rule was? The king was supposed to be above everybody, wasn't he? And so when they got into that room, they got low, and he's still lower, and they got low, and they went as low so that he was above them. Grown men for a baby. That's worship. Now, these men were obviously smarter than this little baby. They, were, uh, they had more money. They had more power than he did. But they were nothing in his presence. He was everything. And so they worshiped him. As I said, they never said anything to his mother, never said anything to Joseph. They just worshiped him. Take your Bible, turn to uh, Philippians, to the right. Philippians chapter 2. In verse 5. In Philippians 2, 5 says, Let this mind, this way of thinking, be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men 
being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee now should what? Bow. Of, uh, of, of things in heaven, all the angels bow, no problem. Things in earth, oh, we got a problem here. And even things under the earth, hallelujah, even the devil one day is going to bow. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is what? He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether you like it or not, whether you understand it or not, Jesus is worthy of worship. How much time, if you do pray, do you spend complaining to him? Think about all the time you say, you know, my husband, you know, that man, <laughs> you know, that kid of mine that I just, that, that boss of mine, that neighbor of mine, how much time do you talk about, Lord, you're unfair. I don't know why this is happening to me. If you counted up all the time you complained and you swapped it out and you praised, I guarantee you your prayer time would be a whole lot better. Worship means not talking about yourself at all. Guess who you want to talk about? Jesus. You know what these men, did they come to Jesus? Say, oh, Jesus, would you take care of this? What did they do? They asked for nothing, did they? Worship. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God for things. There's nothing wrong with bringing your heartaches and your complaints. That's okay. But we don't worship until it's just him. And until we just stop and we just shut up and we go, wow, I'm in the presence of my Savior. Everyone needs to take time at Christmas, like Mary did, to just praise and thank and enjoy the presence of Jesus. I know people, and it's it's kind of cute. Parents teach their child. They come to a share crib, and the baby Jesus has been put in there. And they, that's Jesus, and that's Jesus. And so the kid crosses himself and thinks, and, and I understand they're trying to bid a little bit of respect, but that gets lost when they go, oh, it's just a porcelain doll, or oh, I don't believe in God anymore. If you're saved, if you believe this Bible, you know that doll's not what should be getting you to worship. It's the presence of Jesus when you're praying. And when you, as I'm going to show, when you're having the worst day ever, you say, I need to worship. First thing in the morning, before you get out of bed, I love you, Lord. Thanks for letting me to live free again today. I pray I do it well. Worship all day, man. You want to complain all day? Why don't you swap that out and worship him? The last thing you do at the end of the day, say, Lord, it was a good day. Thank you for going with me. Verse 11, one more thing. The last half, they loved him. Part of worship is not out of your mouth. Did not Jesus say, this people draweth nigh unto me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Make sure your heart is exposed in your worship. We were designed to love the Lord Jesus. The last half of verse 11 says, they fell down and they worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented them gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. When they came to Jesus, they loved him. Say, how do you know that? They showed it. It's wonderful to say, I love you. It's another thing to prove it. Amen. Did Jesus love the world? Yes or no? But he could have said, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
But then he went to the cross and he proved it, didn't he? They showed it. This was not a religious duty for them. It was real. They wanted to worship him with all of their heart. And they gave Jesus, yes, they gave him gold and, and, and frankincense and myrrh. But instead, more than that, they gave them their time, a month out of their schedule. They gave their effort, all of the distance, all of the, um, uh, all the money it cost to give. Out of their own purse, they gave these gifts to Jesus. Our government has got us so used to people getting money from the government instead of, you know what, I need to get a job so that I can give, so that I can help somebody. The Apostle Paul said the best thing that we can do is get a job and work and be a blessing to someone else who can't work. Don't wait on the government. You be a blessing. And don't wait on, well, you know, so everybody else will give to missions. No, no, no. We all give. That's showing our love. They adored him. I like the word adore. Adore has this concept of not saying anything, just it's all on your face. Wow. I used to see people have that. I had my ups and downs where I kind of backslide and my adoration just not at its peak. But boy, at Christmas time, it ought to just remind us I need to just adore him. Come, let us adore him, the carol says. Now, I want to answer the second question here about what good is worship, because it is very good for you, just like broccoli, just like all your vegetables. This is all much better. Worship is a right thing to do, and Jesus deserves our attention and our worship, but it is beneficial. It's not just right. If you take the time to worship, if you take the time to just praise and thank him for your life, it does something for you. Go to Isaiah 26. You can leave Matthew for a, moment, for a while. Isaiah chapter 26. We're going to rapidly go through these scriptures. Isaiah chapter 26 in verse 3. You know what worship will do for you? It'll help your sanity. I mean, honestly. There is something that's wired into us that needs to worship. And if you're just grouchy, if you're just complaining, if you're just focused on, on life and problems, and if you're only just focused on getting up, eating, working, coming home, and going to bed, if you miss worship, you're going to go insane. Look at your Bible, Isaiah 26 and verse 3 says, Thou, God, will keep him in what kind of peace? You know what Christmas is? That will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed, his focus is locked onto, is anchored onto thee, because he trusteth in thee. Worship will help your sanity. You don't trust in fears when you're worshiping Jesus. You don't think about your problems when you're worshiping Jesus. You don't worry about your money or your lack of it or focus on your plans. You're worshiping Jesus. It does something to you mentally. It doesn't fix all your problems. Don't worry about, well, if I just pray, God will take away all my problems. Not at all. But for that time that you're worshiping, the problems will mean nothing. It'll also help your family. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 in verse 4. 
us parents need to show our children how to worship God. You know, it's funny. They probably know how to worship God better than we do. Ephesians 6, 4 says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to what? But bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Show them how to praise God instead of worry. How to thank God instead of complain. A family that seeks to worship the Lord is a blessed and happy family. How is that true? Well, well, it, 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 it takes back what belongs to God, which is your thoughts, your family. That environment in your home ought to be protected, amen? And the way you protect it is you bring Jesus into it. Family. A family that seeks to worship music, movies, and all the movie stars is going to self-destruct someday. Psalm 34.3, I don't have to go there, but it'll, it'll, it's beneficial to our marriages. I like this. I saw this one time, and I've been stuck on it ever since. I saw this at a wedding, and I've used it several times. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. I like that. And let, a, let us exalt his name together. Now, you can apply to a lot of things, but I like thinking about a husband or wife. You've got two people. They're different, all right? They may be in love, but they're going to have to learn to get along. And the way to get along is they focus on one point, Jesus. And as they get closer to him, they will get closer to each other. That's a given. Worship, when the two in a home worship Jesus, it fixes that home to our church. David said in Psalm 22, 22, I would declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. I mean, when you get to be around other Christians, it ought to be your greatest joy that in the midst of everybody, you just sing, you, you say amen, you just love the Lord, even if, as if nobody else is here. That's how we have a great church. If you're worried about, well, there goes so-and-so again, they're getting a little excited. If you're worried about what else is going to think, you're going to have a miserable hour in church. Jesus will help our nation. Psalm 33, 12. Well, let me read this. Psalm 9, 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. Our society is going to hell. But Psalm 33, 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. As churches start worshiping God again, I mean, worship, not just fellowship and meet, but worship, it'll save our nation. But let me take you to where I'm going with a thought, and we'll finish with these things here. Luke chapter 18, worship fixes things. Luke 18 and verse 10. You know, most people worry about worship. They worry about the right feeling, having fancy words to say, being happy and smiley and friendly with everybody. Worship is what we do no matter what is going on around us. Look at Luke chapter 18 and verse 10. Two men are getting ready to pray. Certain uh, 18 verse 10 says this. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other was a publican, a tax collector. He was a turncoat. He had sold out to the Romans and was taking advantage of his own people. Nobody liked him. <laughs> and the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not 
as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as his publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Who's this guy focused on? He's not God, it's himself. Who has all his attention? Himself. You know, most religions either worship devils or themselves. But next guy shows up in verse 13. No, hold on here. Go back. Verse 13, and the publican standing far off wouldn't, didn't feel like he was worthy to stand up next to this holy man. Publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but he smote upon his breast. He felt like hurting himself, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All right. Answer me this. Who was this guy focused on? God. What was this man's view of God? As someone who's Lord in charge and someone who had the final say. What was his view of himself? As a sinner. Notice that he asks God not for blessings or to be made happy or for, you know, for whatever he needs. He said, have mercy upon him. Mercy is when you go before a judge and you're guilty. You don't say, hey, let me off. You say, no, have mercy on me. Don't give me what I deserve. And Jesus says in verse 14, that was when this man got born again. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, forgiven rather than the other. For everyone that exalted himself shall be abased, brought to the bottom. And he that humbled himself shall be exalted. The right view of God, the right view of ourselves causes us to worship. So don't wait. This is the point for everything to be right in your life before you start worshiping Jesus. And I want to prove that to you. Worship needs to be done when it's hard to do. When you don't feel like it, when you have deep problems, that is when I find almost everybody in the Bible worshiping the Lord. I can't take, you can look him up later, but a leprous man came up to Jesus in Matthew 8, 2. It says, behold, there came a leper, a leper. He's not healed yet. And he worshiped him. Saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou can make me clean. Was he worshiping as a healed man or as a leper? You got to think about that for a minute. Get that in your head. Wow, he didn't. Wait for something to happen. Wait for a feeling. Wait for success in his agony, in his sorrow, in his fear. He worshiped. Does that, does that hit you? Matthew 9, 18 says this. Think about when your children are, are at risk, when they're in danger. While he yet spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshiped him saying, my daughter is even now dead, but come now, lay thy hand upon her and she shall live. What's he doing before Jesus ever stepped into his home? Worshiping Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 15, one of the most powerful events of worship in your New Testament. It's found when a woman comes and tries to get help, nobody cares to help. Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. Behold, a woman of Canaan. All right, now she's a national. She's from Canaan, so she's not Jewish. 
She came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. She, if, if you don't help, she's gone. She's ruined. But he answered her, Not a word. This is Jesus. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away. Get rid of her, Lord, for she crieth after us to help her. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We're not going to help anybody right now. That's not a Jew. Verse 25. Then came she. And what did she do? She worshipped him. Saying, Lord, help me. And Jesus goes one step further before he answers her. Verse 26 with the need. But he answered and said, it is not meat. It's not fitting. It's not proper to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. What did he just call her? Verse 27, and she said, truth, Lord, yet, I'm going to put it in the vernacular, yet us dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou, thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. What did she do before Anything happened when she was rejected, when she was ignored, when prayers weren't answered, when nothing was happened, what did she do? She worshiped Jesus, didn't she? Next time that God's not answering your prayers and you want to just give out to him and you just want to say, God, I don't know what's going on up there, but I kind of wondering, do you hear me? Instead of going through all of that, take some time and just worship him. Say, Lord, I haven't talked to you in a while. Maybe I need not to talk at all and just let you talk. Just read my Bible and just seek you. Another one, go to Job chapter 1. Just before the book of Proverbs, uh, book of Psalms is the book of Job. Again, I find most people in my Bible that God records, and I, there's, there's a lot more people than are recorded in the Bible. Don't, don't misunderstand. But when God records this, it's because he wants us to learn from him. And almost all of them worship in heartache, in trouble, in defeat. Job chapter 1, verse 13. There was a day when Job's sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their elder's brother's house, and there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. Everything was fine. And the Sabaeans, another country, fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain thy, the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee you just lost all of your workers and equipment that uh planted and harvested verse 16 and while he was yet speaking there came another and said the fire of god some a fire out of the sky has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and i only am escaped alone to tell thee this news verse 17 while he yet spake yet yet speaking there came also another and said the Chaldeans, I mean, how many animals can you have that come in? The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the, the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 18, I'm sure Job hasn't breathed yet. This is just blow after blow. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, a tornado, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. 
I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose. He rent his mantle. He shaved his head and fell down upon the ground. And what did he do? Are you getting the picture? You're starting to see a little pattern here. They weren't having good days. They didn't just get a raise from job or get a job. They just didn't get what they needed. They were in the worst of situations. They says, I need to worship. I like how he says, verse 21, he says, I came into this world naked, came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord had taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You need to worship God when you, were, when you lose everything. Psalm 34 has David. Uh, did I not go through this? Sorry. When David was troubled for seven long years, you know what he writes? He's in a cave. And you know what he writes? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He says, when, when David's throwing spears at me, as soon as I get out of his presence and I'm running and I'm getting out into the wilderness, I will praise the Lord. You know, when Paul and Silas were in prison, do you might remember what they were doing? They were singing and praising God. They were worshiping when you and I would be dying in pain. We'd be crying out, this isn't fair. We're not guilty. We don't, this, I'm going to sue. <laughs> now, Luke chapter 23, last, last one. Luke 23. Luke 23 and verse 40. You need to worship when you're about to die. Luke chapter 23 and verse 40. Two thieves, repeat offenders, are on e one on each side of Jesus. And uh, they're given out to each other, and one of them's given out to Jesus. And the other one, look what he says in verse 40. The other answering rebuked him, the other thief, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation that I am? And we indeed justly, how does he view himself? Low. We deserve what we're getting. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man between us hath done nothing amiss. He's not guilty. And he said unto Jesus, what did he call him? He's about to die. He says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. In this brief moment, I just want to worship you. You're going into your kingdom. This is not the end for you. Me? This will never end. But would you remember me when you get in here? What's he doing? The last thing before he dies, he's worshiping. He's not panicking. The other guy's angry. The other guy's saying, get us down from here if you really are the son of God. And the other man says, no, we deserve to be up here. I just want to be with Jesus. This Christmas, it is important for us to learn that in the busy times, how many things are needful? One. In the stressed out times, one thing is needful. In the hard and the impossible times, one thing is needful. Even in the dark times when there's danger, when there are afflictions and deep sorrows, only one thing is needful, to worship Jesus. I want you to remember to this, this Christmas, the Holy Spirit to bring it to mind says, I need to worship right now. I need to hit some, get away from everything. Or if you're just busy, and but at that moment, worship him. Get as close to him as possible. 
No, from now on, just get to church early and just start singing before anybody else does. Start worshiping. It'll, it'll catch. I think everybody will enjoy it. Amen? Not Gavin, though. Gavin, wait for us to sing. We'll, we'll wait, bring you in, okay? No, I like Gavin. He's a good singer. In heaven, we will worship him. You ought to read Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 15 and 18, 19, 20, 21. You know what we're going to be doing in heaven? Singing, praising, worshiping. There'll be no more complaints. Don't you dare wait until then to start. Some of you can't. Not that you don't know how, but you don't know him. Oh, you know about him, but you don't know him in your heart of hearts. You've never searched for him. You've never been willing to humble yourself and just let Jesus be Lord of your life and of everything in your life. I mean, honestly, who cares if I live tomorrow? As long as I know, I'm going to be with Jesus. The wise men put all their effort to just believe the Bible is true and follow it, and they met Jesus. You can do that today. This book promises that if you'll call upon the name of Jesus, he says he will save you, and you'll be able to one day be able to meet him, in the, meet him face to face. I can't wait. But you don't have to wait until then to get the gift of Christmas, which is eternal life. If you find it hard to worship, it might be one of two reasons. One is you don't know how, but secondly, you don't know Jesus. You don't know him. These men could not worship Jesus until they got there and he's there in his presence. And then, boom, they're worshiping. One of these days, there are going to be plenty of people who are going to meet Jesus, but it'll be on the wrong side. And every knee shall bow, but it'll be too late. Don't wait until then. Let's stand in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you that you designed us with a need to worship. No wonder the whole world worships something, someone. Everybody worships. Atheists worship. They worship science. They worship materialism. Lord, every, every culture worships because we're designed to. But you step down in this world to show us there's only one to worship. You're the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by you. And I get to worship you every moment of every day. And I pray I do more than ever. I pray the thoughts that go on in my heart are ones of just awe and adoration and hunger to know you better. And I pray that I tell you more and more every day that I love you and I want to serve you. No matter what it costs me, it may not be gold because I don't have any. But whatever I have, I give to you, Lord. These children came up here, Father, and they sang, what can I give to Jesus? And each one of those children had something to give. But all of us have one thing, and that's ourselves. Have we given what we are and who we are to you? If we have than we've experienced already what Christmas is all about. And I pray we live it now in Jesus' name. Amen.